Good morning, friends. Please be seated. As far back as I can remember, whenever I've heard or read one of the miracle stories in the Bible, I've tried to understand and accept it as an essential element of our faith tradition. But it hasn't always been easy. All in all, I'd rather dodge the issue, but there are at least seven such events in John's Gospel alone, including today's telling of the water changed to wine. And they are so prominent that they compel us to come to terms with them as best we can if we are to take the Gospel seriously as God's sacred word. There is, of course, no reason that we should think this would be easy or obvious. Since miracles are fundamentally contrary to any reasonable explanation, there are Christian groups that attempt to account for this by proposing an earlier age in which God intervened by setting aside the laws of the universe as we have come to know them. At one time or another, I myself have speculated whether they might be, for instance, fact or fiction, natural or supernatural, perhaps mythological or even delusional, maybe a fable, a dream, a vision, a mystery, all or none of the above. Ultimately, I have had to recognize that none of my categories were adequate to the purpose for one reason or another. But then, and I am somewhat abashed to say this, I finally got out of my own head long enough to hear what John himself had to say in today's text. What we have called miracles, John called signs. And that is a different perspective altogether. It suggests that we are called to remain open to unimagined possibilities, to break what William Blake once named the mind-forged manacles, and to look beyond the phenomenon and discern what it might mean. We might even learn something about ourselves. Whatever else the miracles may be, they are not intended to be the focal point of the narrative, because as a sign, selves point to Jesus and they tell us to listen to him and do whatever he tells you. That is what the servants at the wedding in Cana do. And they soon became part of a moment they are content to have witnessed without understanding. The steward, for his part, completely misunderstands the situation because of his own expectations. He assumes everyone wants to make the best possible first impression, and then will slack off when they hope no one will notice. And he praises the bridegroom for his largesse. The bridegroom, on the other hand, is the main beneficiary of this inexplicable abundance of superior wine, but doesn't care about the actual source of this gracious and is quite willing to take credit for it himself. Meanwhile, all of the guests at the feast remain in blissful ignorance 
that anything extraordinary has happened. For them, there is nothing miraculous in any of this. The wine just tastes better. Only the companions of Jesus perceive the glory that is revealed in what Jesus has done. And that is precisely what confirms them as his disciples, as it does for each of us. The new disciples begin their walk with Jesus, trusting in his wisdom and goodness, but they are not naive. They don't expect to have their personal beliefs validated and assurances made before they have taken a single step with him. They are familiar with the ancient beliefs and practices of their nation, but not fulfilled by them. They know they have gone beyond the pale when they seek a baptism of repentance in Jordan's waters as a sign of their intention to become fresh and clean in body and soul. They aren't deterred when a high-powered delegation from Jerusalem arrives to challenge the premise that any such renewal can come apart from the temple's sacrifices and obligations. They are prepared to act when the Baptist points out on whom he had seen the Spirit descend and remain. They were astonished that Jesus already knew them by name and eager to see the greater things that he promised. In only a few days, they were to be with Jesus for the cleansing of the temple, another sign of what lay ahead in the days to come. They have seen that the wine which offers exceeds all of their expectations and the best will be served last. They understand it to mean that whatever they thirst for now will be provided and their questions answered in due time. When all was said and done and the disciples had come to the end of the road with Jesus, he told Thomas, do not doubt but believe. And he blessed those who do not require certified explanations and tangible proofs and yet have come to believe. It reminds me of the poet Rilke's inspired counsel to a young poet, which could have just as well been spoken to Jesus' disciples of any age, time, or place. To have patience with everything unresolved in your heart. To try to love the questions themselves. Don't search for the answers, which could not be given you now, because you would not be able to live them and the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday, far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. Someday, we too may even understand how it is that the water of our baptism has become the wine of the Eucharist. And the wine of the Eucharist become the blood of Christ and the cup of salvation. It is both a miracle and a sign. Amen.